listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by Dr. Roman Yampolsky to talk about Metalhead, the fifth episode of the fourth season of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2017. Dr. Roman Yampolsky is Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Engineering and Computer Science at the Speed School of Engineering, University of Louisville. He is the founding and current director of the Cybersecurity Lab and an author of many books, including his 2017 Artificial Superintelligence, A Futuristic Approach, and his 2019 edited collection, Artificial Intelligence, Safety and Security. He's also a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, and Artificial General Intelligence, a member of Kentucky Academy of Science, a research advisor for Machine Intelligence Research Institute, an associate of Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. Now, I've been following Roman on social media for a while now, and I've always found his general disposition toward emergent technologies, which I would describe as cautiously optimistic, to be something with which I deeply sympathize. He's also a rare sort of public intellectual that can speak across diverse fields, computer science, engineering, psychology, philosophy, et cetera, with both ease and insight. So I'm super excited that he agreed to come on the show and speak with me about Metalhead today. So welcome, Roman. Thanks a lot. Black Mirror is my favorite show, and I don't even watch TV, so I'm excited to <laughs> be on a podcast dedicated just to that show. Okay, great. So what I do at the beginning of each of these episodes, I ask my guests to just summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to be talking about. So could you go ahead and summarize for us Metalhead? Metalhead is Terminator, but with a dog instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more of a summary than that. There is many dogs, not just one, and they all pretty cool. They kind of look like the dog from Boston Dynamics. No head, but still some brains somewhere. And they chase humans through this dystopian landscape, black and white landscape, and kill them brutally anytime they find them. So maybe one big difference between the robot dogs in Metalhead and Terminator is that these are not especially intelligent robots, right? I wonder if you maybe first just want to comment on how futuristic this episode even is. Right, so they're not super intelligent. they kind of like a dog who knows how to use USB access and has good weapons. So it's interesting that the fear comes from physical capabilities of robots. They can run faster, the batteries are pretty good, but they're not very dangerous in terms of intelligence. They don't develop a virus to kill all of humanity. They don't do anything of that nature. So in a way, we could probably get a lot of this technology today if we really wanted to. We, we have robot dogs, we have weapons of sorts. So it's not even that futuristic. Yeah, I watched it again last night and I was thinking, I'm not sure that this is any more sophisticated a technology than autonomous drones are right now. Exactly. It's just uh, the whole society collapsed. There is no concentrated groups of humans fighting them. So I guess that's what makes it more difficult to oppose. But uh, yeah, in terms of technology, it's, it's doable. 
Yeah, but it definitely is, as you say, kind of playing on our, culturally speaking, our Terminator fears, our fear of the rise of machines, of intelligent robots that will take over and try to destroy us. And it's helped a little bit in the episode by the fact that we don't know who's behind these dogs. It appears that they're acting autonomously and in cooperation with one another, although you know, they don't seem to be super intelligent other than that. <laughs> All right. Just from observing behavior, you don't know if they're remotely controlled or if it's a swarm which is communicating with each other. It's not obvious, but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference in what they do. Yeah. So I know that you have worked a lot on, actually, there's this really famous lecture of yours. I think it might have even been a TED Talk. So v- listeners can watch it on YouTube, where you talk about the rise of the machines. And among other things, are kind of collective fears about the rise of the machine. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that here. Well, that's my every talk, so I'm not sure which one you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, I research control problem. If we can make systems uh, more intelligent than an average human or even all of us combined, uh, can we control them? Can we predict their behavior, explain it, and remain in charge? And I'm not optimistic in terms of lower intelligence being able to control super intelligence indefinitely. Yeah. And I also take it from what you've said publicly anyway, that you don't think that we're as far off as many people might think from actually confronting this problem as a present reality. I keep updating. Uh, Initially, it was 2045 (laughs) for me, but every time I see like, uh, it used to be a cool AI breakthrough came once 10 years once every year. Now it's once every month. So I feel it like really is. updating a little bit. So what's your current prognosis? I, I'd give about 10% to the next three to seven years. Really? 10%? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. 90% no. So it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I would have, I would have thought it would have been higher in the next decade. That's a, that's a long time given the clip at which we are currently progressing. So. Right. But three years is not a long time. Pretty okay. much whatever we have now in the labs is what's going to be out in three years. So. Right. Right. So what do you think are the hard limitations of, well, just for example, recursively self-improving AI systems? So the main problem is we can't verify this type of software. Usually then we have deterministic systems, mission-critical software. You can check if your implementation matches the design, accurate programming of it, uh, design matches some mathematical formula you were hoping to implement. Whereas if a system is uh, self-modifying, learning, acting in new environments, we don't have a tool to say, okay, it's acting correctly. How would we even know? Yeah, but that seems to be not so much a limitation of the system as a limitation of our ability to recognize that that system has achieved something like general intelligence, right? Well, we can detect the level of performance. I think it's a fundamental limit on uh, behavior verification. You just can't predict behavior of something smarter than you. Now, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but I do know that you used to work in behavioral biometrics. Is that right? That's right. In particular, you worked in detecting whether or not online poker players were bot players, correct? 
telling bots and humans apart kind of captures, but with uh, more involved behaviors, not just uh, can you solve this problem, but are you acting like a human or not long term? Okay, so I actually have a, a question for you about two new poker playing AI. So there was, uh, I forgot what the first one was called, Pluribus maybe mm-hmm. was the first one. Uh, and the second one, no, Pluribus was the second one. Libratus was the first one. But one of the things that I find really interesting, both about the fact that they have come in and completely annihilated all competitions in both face-to-face or one-on-one and multiplayer poker games, is that unlike chess, and I mean, maybe we could argue about whether or not chess involves lying or bluffing, you know, what in poker we call bluffing. People talk about setting traps in chess, but, you know, chess is a closed game, right, in a way that poker is not. But it does appear as if Pluribus has learned to bluff in its gameplay. And the reason I bring this up is because there's a million memes out there about, you know, what we really need to worry about is the robot who can check the box. I am not a robot. Right. And I wrote an essay about this, uh, I guess, a year or two ago. And I said, yeah, that's a real concern is that general intelligence or artificial super intelligence arises and we just don't know that it happened. But I use this example of the robot that can lie about being a robot. I wonder whether or not what we see in Pluribus, which really does look like lying. And this is, again, assuming that something like bluffing or lying would have to include having motivations, goals that cannot be reduced to algorithms. Whether or not that might be evidence of something like the emergence of an intelligence that has capabilities that we can't yet recognize it has. So for a game like poker, you have to bluff. Game theoretically, if you don't bluff, if I know that your actions represent your actual hand, you will lose every time, basically. Yes. So it's a requirement. It's not some special capability. It's a lying poker bot. It's the minimum required to even play poker. In chess, you don't need to bluff because if you're dominating strategically, I don't really care whatever you believe me or not. It's a trap. I'll still beat you. I just right. have to outcalculate you. Right. But the bluffing in poker is so situational. So, I mean, there are, like, I don't think that, that even players, human players that are, you know, so-called playing optimal game theory or whatever uh, are still going to get tripped up by pluribus because pluribus has to be able to bluff in unexpected at unexpected moments right right and bluffing optimal bluffing is done a certain percentage of time you know my range of hands so if i just play top 30 percent of hands you know exactly what i'm playing so i need to add 10 percent of random hands to that mix so you cannot predict what i actually have uh, Nash equilibrium would include optimal bluffing percentages. But my understanding is that what Pluribus did was not that, was chose to play in, in what appear to be really random ways. So maybe I don't know about it as much as I need to. I think purely random play will not uh, get you far, right? You have yeah. to be random appropriate amount of time. Some of your play has to be strategic. Uh, Whatever you're taking advantage of your specific opponent, or it's a general Nash equilibrium for the game, it seems like people don't play optimal poker. 
whereas computers can. And you right. don't even need to be that good. You just have to play perfect game. And then any mistakes humans make is where you take advantage of them long term. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and of course, Pluribus uh, and Libratus before it did have the great advantage of being able to, at the end of each day, learn the patterns of the, the exact players that it was playing uh, and then improve the next day, which, of course, the human mind can't learn that fast um, or or even detect patterns that well. So. well. Right, and plus there is databases of pre-existing hands for most players so you can just learn how they are before you even sit down at the table with them whereas i don't think humans had that against the machine they don't know which strategy it's using today yeah so you would not call that lying you would not you would not say that that phenomenon of bluffing in poker is um comparable to what in in human action we would call lying well, I think it's a separate area of research. There is actual research on how to behavior manipulate humans, how to lie, how to deceive optimally, uh, which is very different. I, when I sit down with a bunch of people to play poker, I don't see them as a bunch of liars. They're just playing the game strategically, whereas right. trying to deceive me at a different level where fake information is supplied outside of this game domain, that seems to be a more direct uh, representation of lying. Yeah, so if we remove the kind of moral opprobrium about lying, so I'm not talking about that, but just the ability to understand bluffing as a, a necessary component in forwarding one's project or whatever, one's progress towards some goal, we could assume, right, that this skill that Pluribus learns in poker could be transferred to other projects. That are oh, not yeah. poker. Any yeah. type of uh, negotiations, you need to be able to deceive, to, to bluff, essentially. But bluffing in poker bots uh, has always been there. It's not a new development in this specific model. It's just really good at other things as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. What would be something that you think, if we saw a machine intelligence that could do this, that you would say, okay, I'm a little worried now, or, you know, whatever, or I'm surprised? we already seen it. I've seen many surprising developments, uh, mostly related to generality. So mm. we used to always work on a specific game, let's say video game, and then a bot would master it with certain level of accuracy. Now we have systems which can how to learn 40 different video games or a language model, which is not just question answering or just translating, but uh, picks up 30 general skills, all related to linguistics, but also apparently you can take it out of this domain and use it with images, use it with movies. So the more general the systems become, the more I'm like, okay, it's getting close to human level generality. I have a paper where I talk about human level intelligence versus general intelligence. We perceive ourselves as general intelligences because we are that good at all the domains we know about, but we don't know about domains we are not good at. We don't know about them. So right. we are not universal general intelligences. We just have a large set of those behaviors. And it looks like AI is getting close to matching that set, that number, let's say 400 different domains. It's not there yet. It's not as general, but it's making really good progress. 
Yeah, and it does seem to be making really good progress and very quick progress in the most important of those domains. So I know that a lot of people complain about machine learning systems not having what we call common sense, but those are, in the grand scheme of things, very significant intelligence domains when you're interacting in human societies or in human-built worlds, but not necessarily the best evidence of intelligence, right? Right. But also I would kind of question our general consensus of common sense as humans. Uh, you look around the world and you go, <laughs> you know, do they have any common sense? And we're not in yeah. agreement on what that it, the common sense is not very common, let's put it this way. That is definitely true. I sometimes wonder, this comes up in my classes a lot, in my philosophy of technology classes a lot, whether intelligence is the best word. I, I'd like it. I think that it's better than talking about, for example, consciousness, which just gets you into all kinds of weird magic-infused <laughs> debates about hard problems and soft problems, and et cetera. But yeah, I mean, intelligence... Or even, you know, sense is a, you know, I mean, there, there are strange selections for measuring capacities of, I don't know, thinkers, machines, I don't know, I mean, uh, minds. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like intelligence. It's all about I do too, yeah. your capability of winning in different domains, and we measure how likely you are to win in a new domain. Uh, seems like more intelligent agents uh, do that a lot. Hey listeners, this is Dr. J. Just wanted to jump in here for a second to remind you that you can keep up with this podcast on our Black Mirror Reflections Facebook page, also on Twitter at BMR underscore podcast. And I also wanted to make a special request that you please subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming service that you use to listen to podcasts. And if you feel favorably inclined to do so, Take a minute to rate and maybe even comment on this podcast. Now back to our conversation. So I know that you semi-recently published this essay on what is called the control problem in AI. I am not sure that all of the listeners, you know, everybody who watches Black Mirror will know what that is. Could you just summarize the control problem or what is called the control problem really quickly? And then maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So the field of AI safety and security, the fundamental problem, the hard problem is how do we remain in control and get what we want as we create ever more capable machines? Then you have a very narrow AI. Let's say it's a tic-tac-toe playing program. I can brute force all possible decisions. I can make sure it does what I want. I know what it's going to do. I'm in charge. Yeah. Then it's something a little more complex, like a go-playing bot. I know it's going to try to win, but I don't know specifically how it's going to do it. If I have a general intelligence and it's uh, beyond human level, I have no idea what it's going to do how it's going to do it, what the state of the world is going to be afterwards. And I have no way of guiding it. I can assign random hard-coded rules, kind of like Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, but we know that always just makes things worse. It just finds mm -hmm. a walkaround, uh, whatever you come up with. You have super intelligent lawyer looking for loopholes in your laws. That's not going to end well. It's like when you uh, get a genie's three wishes, then you, you never actually get what you wish for. 
Exactly. The question is, what uh, time frame you're looking at? Are you going to be happy in the next five minutes, five years, five hundred years? Because consequences of your actions today may be positive, but long term they are highly negative. So it's very hard to find balance between what to ask for and even. Worse yet, if you read the paper, it basically says that even if we succeed and we find a way to actually control it, we don't know what we want. So then we make orders, I want this or I want that. Even if they are fully satisfied to our specifications, we still may be completely miserable at the end. Right, right. So I guess that's really getting at what is behind my question, which is, why is it called a control problem? I mean, the presumption is that we call it a control problem because there's some underlying desire to only create what is sometimes called friendly AI or human-centered AI or human-compatible AI. That's what would make control, the question of control, a problem, is that there might be a machine learning system that we do not have control over. Do you think it's really a problem? having a system which is very capable, but we don't know what it's going to do and just releasing it in the wild? Do I think that's a problem? Yes. Yes, Yes, I do. Why? Because I don't know what it's going to do. It may decide to exterminate all of us. It may torture all of us. It may do nothing. I don't know what it's going to do. I'm not in control. But on that logic, then why would anyone have children? It's a gamble. I took it a few times. Uh, I think the difference is that absolutely the worst child you can produce, the Hitler equivalent, evil, malevolent human, is still very limited capability. He'll kill a few million, we'll move on. A super intelligence system can easily wipe out 100% of humanity, 8 billion or more, which is a different level of danger. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair answer. I suppose that the correlate possibility is also that a super intelligent AI could resolve many of the problems that continue to stymie our rather flimsy intelligences. That, of course, it's possible, right, that we have evil robot overlords that want to wipe us out. But why do you think that we err on that side? We we err on the side of presuming malevolent superintelligence. So if you have a distribution of all possible decisions of all possible futures, just yes. generate brute force all possible futures, the number of them which would match what you consider to be desirable utopia is tiny. Take a subset of this. What a desirable temperature ranges for a human. You can go mm. from zero Kelvin to infinity, whatever, you're not going to be happy in most of those ranges. So if you were to kind of randomly just say, let's have thermostat do whatever it wants, you'd probably die most of the time. So you have to be in control. You have to set range. I'm comfortable from, you know, 30 degrees to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever. Uh, If you look at all the domains which make us alive, we need certain level of temperature, oxygen, water supply, if you look at all of those things, the chance that just randomly this uncontrolled device decides to provide that level of support is zero. Hmm. So it's not like they are on purpose evil. It's just what they do without control is not compatible with being alive for a human. Right. But prioritizing human survival over any infinite 
number of other options certainly just flips the positive and negatives for all other living things, right? You know, this control problem is a control problem if our priority is the survival of the human species. But of course, we already know, we can just look around and see that preserving the human species and, you know, keeping in mind that we've only been here a hot second in cosmic time, right? That preserving the human species is happening at the expense of however many tens of thousands of other life forms every year. I mean, I don't know that now I'm, I'm sounding like myself quite anti-humanistic, but, but I do think those are the philosophical questions, the moral questions that we need to ask. I think a really important question that should be asked when we're talking about emerging technologies is what do we owe future generations? But I think that we also have to ask not just what do we owe future generations of human beings, right? But what do we owe the future planet, the future universe, right? You are making absolutely perfect philosophical argument. (laughs) I am very pro-human biased. It's probably the only bias you're still allowed to have and not get in trouble. And yes, I am 100% biased for humanity. I would sacrifice squirrels to have better life for humans and whatever other necessary sacrifices. If you look at it from a point of view of cosmic third person, I'm not a human perspective. Yeah, super intelligence might be much better in some ways, optimize universe in better ways. But if that means uh, suffering or destruction of humanity, at least from my position of AI safety researcher, human, uh, it's a loss. So I know that, I mean, you're not a policy guy and I'm not a policy person, but let's just thought experiment. Let's imagine you are the newly appointed Secretary of Technology of the United States, which, by the way, I do not understand why we don't yet have a Secretary of Technology in the United States. But let's say you're the newly appointed Secretary of Technology. Would you advocate for things like policy laws? that would prohibit the development of, well, I mean, recursively self-improving AI systems. So we have policy on the books. We have laws against computer viruses, against spam, against every crime, and we still have all of them. It looks good. It sounds good. It just kind of shifts who works on it and how. So if you want US to lose some advantage and shift research to China. You can make AI research illegal. It would not really change anything whatsoever. We don't know how hard the problem is. If it's something which requires kind of Manhattan style project investment, then government can limit access to such resources and slow it down. But what if it's possible for a teenager in a garage to do it in a laptop? We don't know the difficulty of the problem to start the process rolling. If that's the case, then you can't control it just with pure regulation. It sounds really good. You get to meet interesting people, go to cool conferences, but it has no positive impact. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. It reminds me a lot of what we have with CRISPR technologies, which literally somebody can do at home and which could pose a species ending threat if it falls into the wrong hands. And I think that a lot of people are ex post facto scurrying around trying to find policies on how to manage the development and the use of CRISPR. 
But it is one of those fundamentally human problems that if it can be known, people are going to know it. If it can be done, someone's going to do it. Exactly. And just in general, government is very rarely a solution to any problem just by issuing a law saying something is illegal. So what do you think, where do we go? Like, how do we act in the interest of future generations when it comes to AI? So it's very important to understand what is possible, what are capabilities, and that's essentially my research. I'm trying to understand what are the limits to control in terms of, as I said, explainability, predictability, control of different systems. I would guess that a person or a group of people smart enough to create this technology if they understand the argument, may self-regulate much better because the goal is to win, right? You're creating those systems because you want to be rich, famous. But if that really means you're the first person to die the moment that thing kind of messes up, then maybe you change your priorities. Now, it depends. If you are 99 years old dying of cancer, you press the button, you don't care. Most of these people are young people. They still have something to lose. So maybe that would make a difference. An argument of, are you sure you want to develop something you cannot control? Like if you're saying you have a prototype for the control module, it scales perfectly, maybe you're doing well. But I suspect that as of today, no one has one. But you think that it's possible that we will have one. I mean, do you think that this is a problem that can be understood? It could be understood, but my research points at it being unsolvable. Yes, right, right. And that's an important distinction. Maybe just say more about the difference between being able to fully understand the problem and the problem having possibilities to be solved. In computer science, there is not just in computer science and physics and other fields of science. In philosophy. (laughs) Philosophy, proven impossibility (laughs) results. We know this is impossible. We have theoretical proof. No, uh, think perpetual motion or something like that. No amount of tinkering configuration changes will accomplish it because we know it's impossible. I think I'm arguing that control problem has the same properties. To make a system controllable, you have to solve a number of sub-problems. But from economics, philosophy, mathematics, we know that each one of those sub-problems is itself proven to be impossible. Simple things like voting. We know that there is not a representative voting system which accurately takes account of all preferences. So we can't even agree on something. We know that whatever we decide to implement will not satisfy many of us, maybe all of us. So I think the paper you referred to is at 74 pages and I kind of gave up adding to it where each uh, domain of science and philosophy brings in additional impossibility results. It's a fractal where every time you zoom in on a small part of it, you discover a hundred more problems. You never discover any solutions. You just kind of see, oh, it will not work because of those additional reasons. And the safety mechanism we add itself brings up additional backdoors and problems. Yeah, it is interesting, though, to think about how in the last 20 years that the shift has really been, just in terms of safety and security concerns, has been a shift away from, and this is not to say that concerns about things like scammers and hackers and viruses are not still the primary concern, but these other concerns about building systems that themselves have the least amount of possibility for doomsday scenarios. Well, 
so many different domains now uh, advancing very quickly. So you brought up uh, synthetic biology. That's a subdomain of computer science, right? DNA yeah. is code and we're just programming it. We're not very good at typing out new programs. That's what CRISPR gives us a little more assembly versus zeros and ones. But once you get to high level language with DNA, it's become becoming more dangerous than anything we do with computers. It's much more efficient. We know how to quickly reproduce large numbers of those entities. So all those domains are facing the same problem of control of those technologies, whatever it's nanobots, uh, novel biological organisms, chemical, doesn't matter. Well, how about we get back just for a second to the episodes, like very simple, scary robot dogs instead of- The, the, instead good, life. Of, the good life with problems we understand. We know how to kill a dog. Yeah, just according to this episode, you just dump a can of paint on its head and shoot it with a single barrel shotgun. That should be all we need in the future. I mean, I don't think that this is very far off at all from present technological capabilities that we could replace more or less a army or even a police force with something like these dogs. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to be the dogs. We have even more sophisticated humanoid robots every year that have better and better capabilities. So is this something that you worry about that when we talk about robot development, that a lot of the interest and funding seems to be in the interest of defense, security, warfare, those sorts of things. It's always been the case. Yes, military, DARPA, IARPA, they always had a lot of funding. And by definition, they're kind of interested in optimally killing as many people as possible while remaining in control. With dogs in particular, with drones, the hardware seems to be a limiting factor. So if you look at a company like Boston Dynamics, amazing, uh, amazing results, right? Very quickly. True. What if they just sell them for a billion dollars? What's yeah, yeah. that? A database of four numbers sold for what? 13 billion, 20 billion, I don't even remember. So we are not pricing the hardware the same way as we're pricing brains, intelligence, pure cognitive capability. And I think there is a reason for that. Those things could be a lot more dangerous. They are harder to visualize for a movie, but uh, that's where a real concern is and not so much in military applications, but kind of standard deployed systems with side effects. So since you said that you are a Black Mirror fan, uh, have you seen all the episodes? I just finished last week, and it's interesting. I was initially <laughs> watching them in sequence, then I fell behind, started watching backwards, and I met on the episode we are discussing. Oh, no. <laughs> That's it was hilarious. Right, like, my intersection point, and I got confused because I, I have terrible memory. I forget them, but yeah. it shows that I watched them, and I'm watching the same one over and over. I'm like, I know all of it, but I don't remember any of it. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. Well, there are themes across the episodes, and this is a little bit of a shift from the robotics to the machine intelligences. But one of the interesting things that I think you can see across the series is that the series as a whole does seem to implicitly understand the human mind to be simulatable, reproducible, you know, transferable from one sort of a body to another sort of a body, duplicable. So it does have a very interesting sort of view of human intelligence 
as not particularly tied to the hardware that it, you know, operates in the fleshy hardware that it operates in, in our minds. I'm just curious, I know in several of your essays that you talk about other ways of possibly achieving general intelligence at some point, one of which would involve uploads of human consciousness or some combination of a partially uploaded human consciousness and then a machine learning system. I mean, you know, now we're really getting into a sci-fi conversation, but do you think that that is more likely or less likely than the emergence of a machine intelligence? They both equally likely. It's a question of timescales. Oh, really? Progress in AI seems to be faster than progress in mind uploading, at least right now. We don't have even rudimentary uploads for human brains. So just time-wise, I wouldn't bet on it, but I think it's feasible to develop this type of technology. Now, it brings up questions you mentioned about consciousness, of course, this magical internal state, and we are not very good at figuring out how it's produced by physical systems. So if it's like a side effect of computing, side effect of intelligence, which comes for free, then we'll get it. But if it's something separate and we just don't understand it yet, then you will uh, simulate kind of this outer shell, this capability for simple uh, sensory processing, but you'll miss the internal states, which seem to be kind of fun to have. Yeah, I enjoy them. But of course, that possibility, were it to come about, means that we would be looking at something like what I think a lot of the popular understanding of the so-called technological singularity is, a real kind of merging of humanity and technology. And then going back to our conversation from a few minutes ago, then that has to dramatically change how we understand your concern, the concern of preserving humanity, once humanity is not what we understand it to be now. I mean, I think that we would have dramatically different evaluations of our role in the universe and our purpose as a species, even if, for example, we extended our lifespan by 100 years, which, you know, is not really that far off that we would have a dramatically different understanding about our relationship to future generations, about our importance in the grand network of life and those sorts of things. But even that would be a change of an entirely different order than merging with machines or merging with technologies and really having to think of a new kind of post-human species. So, you know, just to get back to your control problem, it seems like the control problem is a historically specific problem, the kind of pre-singularity problem. Right. I'm a bit skeptical about hybrid option merging with uh, technology because we don't have anything to offer. If I have an iPhone, I put it next to my head, I type it, okay, it's uh, useful to have this extra capability, but I'm not attaching my old Nokia phone to my head, it's useless. It contributes nothing, it's a bottleneck. That's Mm -hmm. what a human would be in comparison to superintelligence. If that system is smarter, faster, has more memory, what are you contributing to this equation? Either implicitly or explicitly, you will be removed from it. You just don't contribute. So very short term right now, while we're still switching from narrow AI to AGI, you still have something to offer. You're still the smarter one. But long term, I don't see it as a, promising solution to anything. 
So I'm shooting from the hip here. I'm just spitballing here. But I think that that would depend on whether or not we could imagine a machine general intelligence or super intelligence that had interests that exceeded something like only optimizing its survival. We're moderately intelligent beings and we have all kinds of interests, you know, art and music and that that aren't primarily about survival or advancing our species, but are just about certain desires that are satisfied. Why wouldn't, why is it impossible to imagine that it might not be a terrible idea to have human beings around just because it allows for a diversity of experience? So specifically with art, music, uh, I still think machines can produce superior art and superior music. So simply being a human doesn't give you an advantage. Now, no, no, I was saying that for uh, for humans that, you know, we have these things, but, but why was it not possible to think that there might be some kind of art, not in the sense that we consider art, but some kind of interest that is comparable to our interest in art, that is not a utilitarian interest. You mean for keeping humans around? No, I'm saying that the new super intelligence might have interests that we can't even imagine that are not merely about surviving. And one of those interests, we might be useful to one of those new interests. So it's like from Matrix where we are batteries. That's the only thing yeah. we can provide, the temperature. Well, no, because that, that would be a, a, a merely utilitarian function, right? right? So, so then when they get better batteries, then they don't need us anymore. But yeah. why not something like... Uh, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, here's the thing that I can't possibly give you an example because I don't know, you know, what, but, but what novel, novel desires would be. You're pointing out to some sort of human fetish. It likes having a human around for whatever. Yeah, it is. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, that's possible. But then A, you probably don't need 8 billion pets. And B, <laughs> the treatment you will get if you're not contributing intellectually, you're not an artist, what is it you are contributing? If you are happy in this position of a pet, Okay, maybe you'll be around for that. Is this yeah. the future you're hoping we'll get to if we succeed at creating superintelligence? You, me personally? Well, I don't, you as a yeah, I mean, of other pets. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's, I've never thought about that in that, those terms, but I could imagine that I could live a much better life as a pet to a superintelligence than I could as a human being now. If I were able to do what I do that I enjoy doing in my life right now, I were able to talk about philosophy, to teach, to read, to play music, and I didn't have to worry about income, starving, war, or any of those things. And I was largely taken care of for the amusement of some other super intelligence. Yeah, that seems like a much better life. I, I think that would be like human flourishing in my mind. <laughs> so, so two points on that. One, I think whatever changes we agree on, there should be an undo button. If you don't like the situation, you should be able to revert back. Whereas right, if right. you are a pet and you're not in control, you lose that option. You are now in that position forever. Right. Second point is that the things you mentioned, you are a philosopher, you enjoy coming up with intellectual uh, arguments because you are one of the best people in the world at it. If you were so horrible compared to superintelligence at all those things, like child-level performance, you would not get pleasure in producing inferior arguments, writing crappy music or ugly art. We right, enjoy right. Because we have the best thing in the universe at it. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. It had not occurred to me. Yeah, that would be an absolutely miserable experience to have to do something that I both do poorly, but enjoy. Yeah, like the Rubik's Cube, which I really love. Playing chess is an example. I used to love playing chess and then (laughs) machines became so much superior at it. You are the best (laughs) among humans. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's fair. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Okay, so Roman, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests three questions. So I'm going to state them all in a row, and then you can answer them in whatever order you want to answer them in. So the first question is, what do you think is the takeaway of Metalhead or the lesson of Metalhead? Second is, what worries or concerns you the most about the world as it is presented in Metalhead? And then the third is on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia, where does this world that we see in Metalhead fall? I have the worst memory. Like, as you say them, I forget them. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to ask them to you one at a time. You can answer them after I ask them. The first question is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of Metalhead is? The lesson is don't create technology you don't control. It's a gamble. You're unlikely to win. Make sure you understand consequences of creating that technology. You have some sort of a recourse, you have an undo button if you don't like what happens. Okay, the second question is what worries or concerns you the most about this uh, world, this world that we see in the episode, Metalhead? It's interesting that humans are shown as those pointless animals who have a mission which has absolutely no purpose. They're trying to get a box of teddy bears for some make-a-wish foundation type situation, uh, your whole civilization just collapsed, you have like the last chance to survive. It seems to be not very efficient use of resources. And again, that's very representative of our altruism in general. Okay, and then the last question is on a like dystopia to utopia, where does this fall? So you give me from one to 10, I think it's an infinite scale. So 10 would be a lower, lower, range of miserable uh or did i switch it is one the best no no you're right one is the worst and one 10 is the best worst, so there is not like negative infinity That's <laughs> encouraging. i would always think things can get worse so you're telling me it would be uh, a negative number somewhere that this is a, this is, this is, is worse than you given how horrible things could be i think that episode is not so bad given how horrible things could be uh, okay, so it's still on the lower end of a one to ten scale, but you think it's it, not it, optimal. It, it, they get killed and tortured, but uh, at least <laughs> they die quickly. Okay. Well, I really do appreciate you coming and taking some time out to talk about. I, I want to say to talk about Metalhead, but we really talked about everything but Metalhead. <laughs> that was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. It's a it's a fun topic, and I'm happy we got to chat about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have another podcast to follow this one where we're going to be talking about a lot about tech too. So I'll invite you back if you'd come back. 
Sounds awesome. Let's do it. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Ramon. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.